Well, now we turn to the preaching of God's word. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to the gospel of Matthew chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. And as I was uh, preparing the sermon for this evening, I didn't really necessarily, necessarily have the intention of, of connecting it to our morning service sermon when we looked at the Gospel of John chapter 2 when Jesus begins his ministry. But it, it'll work out in such a way that I think that we'll see a linkage this evening. I hope it'll be encouraging as we see how these Gospels work together in, in Christ's ministry on earth. As we looked at the beginning of Jesus' ministry this morning, we come this evening to a, a focal point, this midpoint of his ministry here in Matthew 17. And so as we prepare to read this passage, it's a passage of the transfiguration. Again, another passage you may be familiar with. I want us to first consider the attitude in which we come this evening. This past week, I had the opportunity to attend the International Presbyterian Church. They put on something called the Catalyst Conference every year. It's a, a conference geared toward ministers and ministry workers brought together many from, from different denominations, not only the IPC, but the Free Church and, and EPQ and many others, not only from the UK, but from abroad. And it was really such an encouraging time. One of the speakers, someone you may be familiar with, was, was Sinclair Ferguson, uh, a well-known preacher and teacher and theologian who, who just commands the attention of the room. He, he speaks with such sincerity and warmth. He, it's the kind of guy you could just listen to, read a phone book and be perfectly content. And one of the things that he was speaking about this week is discussing the goal of our preaching. And that the goal of our preaching is not simply to instill information into our minds, but to stir the affections of our hearts. And so it's appropriate, as he was saying that, and I was considering this passage already to think about how, what this should stir within us. Not just to gain more head knowledge about Christ, but to recognize and allow that to penetrate our hearts. It went along well with a, a quote actually I read recently from Charles Spurgeon, a famous English minister who actually pastored here in London in the 1800s. And he was a, a powerful preacher, this gifted orator, thousands upon thousands would flock to his church on a Sunday, and as a result of his preaching, you'd see this open display of affection, or of, ex of emotion, rather, from so many in his church. And he said this about emotion. He, he didn't care for senseless emotion that lacked spiritual expression, but he saw an appropriate place for emotion in the heart of the believer within the church. And this is what he wrote once. He said, a sinner has a heart as well as a head. A sinner has emotions as well as thoughts, and we must appeal to both. A sinner will never be converted until his emotions are stirred. Unless he feels sorrow for his sin, unless he has some measure of joy in the reception of the word, you cannot have much hope for him. The truth must soak into the soul and dye it with its own color. The word must be like a strong wind sweeping through the whole heart, and swaying the whole man, even as a field of ripening corn waves in the summer breeze. Religion without emotion is religion without life. And so as we think of our passage tonight, I hope it's one that evokes emotion in the heart of believers. Because we're going to be looking again at this glory of Christ, his true identity, 
And again, not that Jewish just gain this intellectual knowledge or understanding about who Christ is, but what that means to us as believers, that we may long to see the face of Christ as his disciples do in this passage. And so let's turn to our passage, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me again? Almighty God, you are the father of lights. And so we ask that you shine in our hearts and in our minds that we might understand your message that you give to us tonight from your scriptures. We ask, Lord, that the the power of the gospel may come to us not only in word, but through the power of your spirit that he may guide us in truth and strengthen us to all obedience, that we may glorify your name. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know if if any of you are are runners in here. It's one of my hobbies, something I enjoy uh, with four kids. Usually it has to be an early morning run or it's not going to happen in my household. Um, I used to like to do a lot more races than I get the chance to do now. One race that I did when I lived back in South Carolina was actually a race up in North Carolina, the mountains of North Carolina. It was a 50-mile ultra marathon, and it was this beautiful setting. You'd be running through these single-track trails, through these wooded mountains and and over streams and creeks and up and down the mountains, and they had checkpoints during the race that were very key in your success because you, you wouldn't carry everything you needed for that race. These checkpoints provided water and nutrition as you needed to. You, you check in to make sure you're going the right direction. If you need to stop and rest, you could do so. And so I remember one checkpoint at the middle of the race, mile 25 was at the very top of this mountain, this, this just scenic point where you get to this point in the race and you just, you just want to stop right there. Because you're, you're tired. My legs were already cramping from coming up. I had gotten behind on nutrition. And, and if you get behind without nutrition, it, it's hard to catch back up and be able to be successful in the, in the rest of the race. And so it was at that point where you, ch- you kind of have to, to motivate yourself to keep moving onward, to make sure you know where you have to go from there, and ultimately try to get to that finish line because that's ultimately your goal. 
Well, as we we look at this passage tonight, it's a a similar scenario in that, like I said before, this is kind of the midpoint of Jesus's ministry. Little by little, Jesus has been leading his disciples, leading his people to the revelation of his true identity. And now he comes to this mountaintop experience, so to speak, with his disciples, allowing them to catch a glimpse of of his glory in order that they may continue on in their faith, in order that may continue to follow him because the the pathway forward to finish this race is not to continue up, but is actually to come down. It's a pathway toward the cross. And so that's where we are in our passage this evening at this mountaintop experience for these disciples. And before we get to this point, then I want to go back just briefly to consider where have they been in this journey so far? Because our passage begins by saying after six days. Well, what happened six days before? If we were to turn back to Matthew 16, it says that Jesus and his disciples had arrived in this district of Caesarea Philippi, and it was this very key conversation that Jesus has with his disciples here. He asked them, who do people say the Son of Man is? They respond, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say other prophets, but Jesus follows up and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, he pipes up, he responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus, he gives a a rather interesting response. On the one hand, he blesses Peter for seeing his true identity, but then he tells his disciples, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Because he goes on to explain at that point that he must go to Jerusalem where he's going to be suffered and killed and he will rise on the third day. And Peter, probably a little confident that he had gotten the right answer on the first question, pipes up again and he says, no, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And we see this change. Jesus goes from blessing Peter to rebuking him. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Not only am I going to suffer, but I'm calling you to suffer with me. And so we see this, this transfiguration, again, this pivotal moment. It's a watershed moment where we look to see all that has happened in the past to recognize Jesus' identity, to recognize what comes ahead. And so these, this theme that we see in, in Matthew 16 is really carried on here to chapter 17. And what I want us to focus on tonight then, from this passage when we see this glimpse of, God's, of Christ's glory, is first to consider his glory. We saw this this morning in, in thinking about Jesus' glory revealed at the beginning of his ministry. How is it even further revealed at this point? So first, Christ's glory. Secondly, Christ's mission. And then, third of all, our response. So let's first look at Christ's glory. Now, you may know that if you know about the the Gospel of Matthew, this was a a book that was written targeting a Jewish audience. So Matthew himself being a Jew, knowing that many Jews would read his text and be able to understand the history and the tradition and the prophecy that led up to this point, he goes to, to great lengths to be able to link his gospel to the Old Testament to link Jesus to this Messiah that has been prophesied long ago. So we see it's at the very beginning of Matthew, this genealogy linking Jesus back to David and everyone in between. And so we see here then that this this illusion continues, this illusion that he uses to, to look back at the history of the people of Israel, particularly looking at the book of Exodus. He uses really a very similar storytelling in this passage. And so we look in verse 1, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. 
If we were to consider Exodus 24, God commands Moses to come with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu to worship. They ascend Mount Sinai, where it's covered with a cloud for six days. And so Matthew, Matthew in, his, in his gospel, immediately, he tells of this glorious vision. Jesus transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You see this glorious unveiling occur. This word transfigure, it, it means to be transformed. It's not really used much in the New Testament other than by Paul on a couple occasions. And he's talking about this transformation that believers undergo when we come to faith. In Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The same word used here. So not only, though, is, is this transformation in, in this passage talking necessarily in a spiritual sense, but this physical transformation. And not to say that Jesus is changing, but rather this previously hidden dimension of Jesus' glory is now revealed to his disciples. All the dullness of these earthly conditions have been temporarily stripped away so that his true nature may be revealed to the extent that we see his face shining like the sun. And so again, should remind us of the story of Exodus. Go back to Exodus 34, Moses on Mount Sinai, 40 days, 40 nights, receives the Ten Commandments, returns to his people of Israel, and it says his face shone. Face shone to such an extent that he had to wear a veil over his head so as not to scare the others of Israel. But we notice a difference here because Moses' face, it's shown with the reflection of God's glory. Here in this passage, Jesus shone with his own innate glory. Jesus is the source of this light. A glory with such intensity, with such otherness, that when Moses asked to see God's glory, remember what, how God responded? He said, you cannot see my glory and live. So he puts him in the cleft of a rock. He covers him with his hand and passes by so that Moses may only see his back. And so this incomparable glory of God is now revealed here and seen in Jesus. And so then what, what this, this vision continues this narrative, we see that not only is, is Jesus by himself at this point, but Moses and Elijah appear with him. And I think oftentimes this is where may, the confusion may set in if we're not familiar with this passage. What does it mean when, when Elijah and Moses show up? It seems even that Jesus' own disciples are a little perplexed here. And you might have heard various interpretations of, of who Moses and, and who Elijah represent. Maybe most common you hear Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And while there may be some, some level of truth there, Interesting in, in looking into this, the, the really the, the one commentator that I think really summed it up well, he said that their appearance sums up the entire drama of the old order from the beginning to the end. Moses being the predecessor and Elijah being the precursor of the Messiah. And so they show that these men, their presence, along with the whole of the Old Testament, they point to this coming Messiah and prove that it is he who has arrived. And so as this drama continues to mount, this isn't really the climax of the story talking about Moses and Elijah. Moses, or Matthew, he cuts off Peter mid-sentence as he's, he's giving this narrative because Peter starts asking questions of Jesus and he says, behold, focusing our attention on this bright cloud that's overshadowing him. And again, it should remind us of the Exodus. The presence of God was represented repeatedly in the appearance of this cloud on top of Mount Sinai, leading the people through the wilderness. 
But it's not only the appearance of this cloud that we see in this, in this passage of Matthew. It's the voice that comes from the cloud. And so Matthew is trying to get the reader's attention again. He says, behold this cloud. But then it didn't even say in the ESV. If you go back to Greek, it says, behold, again, behold this voice from the crowd. Let's focus in what's most important here, this, this voice from the crowd. And what does it say? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so in the previous chapter, we had just heard this profession from Peter, professing that this Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. But here we see it from the voice of God himself. This is my son. It's an exact repetition of what Matthew records at the time of Jesus' baptism in in chapter 3, when the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. Except Matthew adds something at the end. He records this extra command at the end to listen to him. And so again, it seems as though Matthew is linking this story back to the Old Testament, back to the story of Exodus again. If we turn to to Deuteronomy 18, this is what I, I read for us earlier where God promises to send this new prophet and he prophesies through Moses. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So we see here that Jesus is this prophet. Jesus is the one who has been sent by God. Matthew is is showing us that not only does Jesus share in God's glory, he shares in his authority. And therefore, we listen to him. And so when the disciples, when they hear this voice, it says they fall on their faces in fear. It's interesting. Both Mark and Luke recount this this story of the transfiguration. But when they talk about the fear of the disciples, they, they talk about it at the very beginning of the narrative. It's interesting that Matthew includes this retelling of their fear at this spot after these words, as if this is the appropriate spot for your emotional response when you recognize the identity and the authority of Jesus, the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And it says, when they raise their heads, they see only Jesus himself. There's no Moses, there's no Elijah, only Jesus, for it is Jesus alone who possesses all authority, Jesus alone who possesses all glory. And it is to him we are to listen. And so imagine the lasting impact that this would have had on youth. Imagine the lasting impact this had on the disciples. I mean, we hear this retelling. We, we looked at this verse this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Verses 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John witnessed this firsthand on that mountain. Peter himself recounts this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And so we see that these men were moved by the glory of God. But we see that this is just a glimpse, because this glory in his fully revealed state, doesn't remain. They rise and see Jesus alone, and they descend the mountain together, and maybe we're asked, well, why why didn't Jesus remain in this state? 
Why did he have to come back? Why did he choose to come back with this veiled glory of his earthly condition? And that leads us then to the second question. The second point here is the mission of Jesus. We see Jesus' identity. We recognize his glory. What is his mission that we see in this passage? Well, if we look back to this uh, initial appearance of Moses and Elijah again, Peter responds with a, with a, seems like a rather odd suggestion. Let me build some tents for you three. And doesn't really explain what he was, what he was trying to get at here, but it seemed as though he sensed that the day of the Lord was near and that he desired the Messiah to stay and dwell among his people. Because that is what's been prophesied, right? Maybe he thinks this is the time. However, it's, it's this longing for this immediate establishment of God's earthly kingdom. It, it demonstrates his lack of understanding as to Jesus' mission. Because we saw when, when Jesus talks about this need to suffer, back in chapter 16, Peter says, no, not on my watch, Jesus. And so even though Jesus rebukes him, there's still this, this sense of misunderstanding, thinking, Jesus, you don't need to suffer you can set up your kingdom now, reveal your glory to us now, to everyone now. But we see this isn't Jesus' plan. In fact, in verse 9, he commands his disciples not to tell anyone about what they saw. And so Jesus, he gave similar commands of secrecy to others in the gospel. Multiple times he performs these miracles, he heals the lame and the sick, and he, he instructs them not to tell anyone. Peter, in chapter 4, when he pro professes who Jesus is, he says, don't tell anybody. And we're left wondering, why, why the secrecy? Well, think about in our own lives, when we have a secret or we may say something to somebody, we don't want to project it to everyone. It's, it's oftentimes because we want to prevent misunderstanding. It's information that will be disclosed, but we're not ready for that information to be disclosed yet because it may be received poorly. And so I think it's the same reason here. Jesus is not wanting to conceal himself because he doesn't care about those around him. It's because he's working according to his plan, according to his mission. Because you got to remember the people of, of Israel, many of them expected this Messiah to come and to set up an earthly political kingdom. They wanted to see this miracle worker, Jesus. Hey, are you, are you truly the Messiah? Then let's overthrow Rome here. But Jesus sees that as a, as a distraction to his true mission. Because the thing is, his glorification is coming. His kingdom is coming, but only through his suffering. And so we see this, this illusion when we think back of the voice of, of God in the cloud here. Yes, it reminds us of Jesus' baptism. It reminds us of what was said by Moses in his prophecy in Deuteronomy. But I think there's this, this third illusion that we see here. Because God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And it's the second half of this phrase, with whom I am well pleased, or in whom I take delight. This isn't included in Mark's gospel. But Matthew's including this phrase here, likely in reference to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 includes something called the servant song. It begins with this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And so God is prophesying through Isaiah that while the Messiah possesses all power and all glory, he comes as a servant. He comes as a servant to save. And so we see this theme then more clearly in the second part of our passage because we see as they're descending this, the mountain, disciples are, are obviously confused here. They've seen Jesus in his glory. 
They recognize Moses and Elijah. They assume that the day of the Lord is near. And they ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And it's likely because they would have known Old Testament prophecy. The prophet of Malachi, he says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they think, okay, Elijah is here. The day of the Lord is coming. Wait a second, Elijah just left. What is going on here? And so Jesus clears up this confusion, verse 12. I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. They did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Jesus is making clear, he's already told his disciples this, who Elijah is in Matthew eleven fourteen, He tells them that John the Baptist is Elijah. And so yes, the prophecy of Elijah to come, that has been fulfilled, but it's been fulfilled in the presence and the appearance of John the Baptist. And we know what happened to John the Baptist. As he prepared the way of the Lord, he came under the persecution of the Jewish leaders. He was persecuted and killed, and Jesus is saying, the same thing must happen to me. My mission comes through my suffering and my death. And so Jesus is making clear that this this transfiguration is a foreshadowing of what is to come. Jesus' glory will be eternally revealed. He will dwell with his people forever in perfect community. But that day has not come yet. Because the truth is that the cross must precede precede the crown. That pain must precede glory. That humiliation must precede exaltation. And so this is the counterintuitive counterintuitive path of salvation. This is what Jesus says later in Matthew 20. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the good news of the gospel, that the Messiah has come to serve his people and to save them from their sins. And so this is what also Paul talks about in his letter to the Philippians in Philippians 2. That though Christ was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this is the reality of Jesus' mission. His journey is completed at the cross That our salvation, that his glorification only comes through his death and his suffering and his resurrection. But we can be confident that Jesus did not stay in the grave. That wasn't the ultimate conclusion to his journey. We know on the third day he arose again. He ascended into heaven. He sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so this is the reality of who Jesus is and what his mission is. What then should be our response? Thinking back to the the conference that I attended this week again, there was much talk. I shouldn't say much talk. There was a talk about how to preach Jesus, particularly from the Old Testament. And, And the temptation is for many who are there, Reformed Presbyterians, we often take pride in our own exegesis, We like to to parse Greek verbs. We like to kind of pinpoint and fine-tune these points of theology that we see within the text. And as a result, our our goal is to get to Jesus, but sometimes we hold Jesus up as as the answer to a crossword puzzle. 
to think, look and see what I've done. Intellectually, I have come to the right answer that this passage is talking about Jesus. But when we do that, we're actually just trivializing Jesus because we're more satisfied in stimulating our minds and actually engaging the hearts. And so the same can be done for you as hearers. To hear the word and you acknowledge it that it's true, intellectually you may accept that Jesus' identity, but how does it impact your life? What does it mean for you? Notice the disciples when they respond to being witnesses of God's, of Jesus' glory. It's not this intellectual response, say, ah, I got it now. No, they fall on their faces in fear. And so the question is, how do you respond to Christ's glory? Do you fall on your face in fear? Not the type of fear that leads to dread, not a fear that causes us to run away from Jesus. No, Jesus said, no, don't have that sort of fear. He picks up his disciples, but it's a fear in which we stand in awe and reverence of God. It's a fear that should lead us to to this deeper faith, to this greater affection a fear that draws us closer to Christ and gives, gives us the desire to follow after him. Because we hear the voice of God command, this is my son, listen to him. And by commanding us to listen, it's not simply to, to hear him. It's not simply this command to respect him or, or, or to just dwell in his presence. It's, it's a command to obey. It's a command to follow Because we know this journey would continue. Jesus is going to the cross. He said in chapter 16 to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so we need to realize that, yes, though we are saved by the blood of Jesus, there is nothing that we can do to contribute to our faith. We also become more and more like him in our suffering. We identify with Christ in his life. We identify with Christ in his death. We recognize that the path of salvation, the path to Christ's ultimate glorification is to be brought low in order to be raised up. And so that may look different for each one of us. The question of suffering is nothing that's comfortable in our lives that we like to talk about. And we don't talk about it flippantly in the sense that we have to go seek out suffering for the, same, for, the, for the name of Jesus. But where is suffering appropriate in our lives? Where do we have these sinful tendencies that dwell within us that we need to root out? Things that aren't ultimately bad. There's nothing bad necessarily with money or with comfort or with friends. But when we allow these things to become idols... We need to root them out. When, when we face persecution of many kinds, maybe we will never be imprisoned for our faith, but certainly to speak the gospel boldly in our workplace, among our friends, among our neighbors, there will be ridicule. There will be pushback. Are we comfortable with that? Do we lean into that? Do we recognize that that is our path in our walk of sanctification? And so we see that this call to suffer is actually coupled with this call to share. Because we see here that though Jesus, he tells his disciples not to say anything at first. He tells them, don't be silent forever. After my death and resurrection, this secret is is, is to be made known to all. 
And that's why John can talk about it. That's why Peter can talk about it in their epistles and gospel. That's why we know what is recorded here in Matthew. Matthew says at the end of his gospel, all authority in heaven on earth is given to me. This is Jesus speaking. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's, Jesus' ultimate command to his people. The silence has ended. And so we respond to Christ's glory with fear that leads to obedience, that leads to proclamation. Not only do we desire to see the face of Jesus as his disciples, it should be our desire for others to see the glory of Jesus. Because this vision of Christ, this is the ultimate goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is not faith. The goal of Christianity is not the forgiveness of of sins. Faith is the means. Forgiveness of sins is the effect of our faith. But our goal is to see Christ. And so that's why we are on this pilgrimage from faith to sight. And so that we may long to see the face of Jesus. Much like we read from Revelation this morning, this ultimate kingdom that Christ established where he will rule and reign and be in community with his people. This is what we long for, to see the face of our Savior. And so we conclude the way that we began. As Spurgeon urges, we respond not only with our heads here, but we respond with our hearts. That we rejoice that the Messiah has come, that we rejoice that his glory has been revealed, and we long for his return when our faith will be turned to sight, when we will experience the full glory of Christ. May that impact our hearts. May that transform our lives until that day comes. Pray with me. God, we desire to see your glory. And we know that your glory is evident in creation. Your glory is evident through your gospel. But we know that in the future, upon your return, your glory will be fully revealed to your people. And so may we long for that day to see the face of Jesus. May that be motivating in how we live. May we recognize even the goodness that comes through your mission to be brought low and and able to be built up. And so may we be willing to follow you. May we identify with you both in your death and in your life. May the truth of your identity, the power of your glory, leave us changed this evening. Transform our hearts, Lord, into your likeness. More and more we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.